It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Here on Cyber, one type of hacking we're particularly concerned slash fascinated by are the types of hacks that don't just steal data or trade secrets or embarrass the DNC, but the kinds that target water systems or nuclear power plants. An electrical generator's motor self-destructs, triggered by a cyber attack. This was a U.S. government exercise, but what happened recently to an American public utility was real. Hackers successfully breached a utility's computer network. The Department of Homeland Security won't identify the company or the type of utility. Experts say it could have been a water treatment plant, a gas pipeline, or a power station. Dragos is a cybersecurity firm that specializes in critical infrastructure security. And today, we have Selena Larson, a cyber threat intelligence analyst at the company, to walk us through how these hacks are even more complicated than just nation-state hackers trying to knock the lights out. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Okay, so Selena, Selena, thanks for being on the pod. Is it fair to say that critical infrastructure attacks, they're going up, or... Because it seems to me like you're getting more and more headlines where more and more critical infrastructure companies are getting attacked. Kind of. So what we have right now is uh, increased visibility into critical infrastructure and cybersecurity. You have it, uh, especially what we're seeing in oil and gas, you have um, a lot of these energy companies who are increasingly focused on cybersecurity. They're improving visibility in their networks, whether it's uh, through ICS-specific threat detection products uh, or just you know more focus on that piece of it. And so when you increase visibility, which we still need to do, we're not at you know a satisfactory point yet, but as you increase visibility, you're just going to be detecting more threats. You're going to be seeing more stuff. So yes, there is a trend of increasing interests and attacks and campaigns targeting critical infrastructure, but a lot of that has to do with we're seeing more and we're able to collect that data and analyze that data. And as you get greater visibility into these organizations are going to see more activity. And just for the layman's terms, what is ICS? Yeah, so ICS stands for Industrial Control Systems. That can be pretty much anything from critical infrastructure. You have electric utilities, the grid, as people like to say, uh, oil and gas companies. And then you also have things like manufacturing, pharmaceuticals. At Dragos, we don't actually include in terms of ICS uh, healthcare specific things um, like medical devices, uh, but pretty much any sort of industry focus, whether it's automotive manufacturing or your uh, company that's keeping the lights on, that's under the ICS umbrella. And, you know, one thing I've always found really interesting about ICS is a lot of the devices that were, that were programmed originally for ICS, for critical infrastructure, were done in like the 80s and 90s, and it's all this really cheap kind of simplistic code that's really easy to meddle with. I wouldn't say it's cheap. It's actually very expensive <laughs> products that are, uh, that are in these systems. But to your point, yeah, you have a lot of these devices that are operating on older uh, software. A lot of the operating systems are old. You, uh, of course, we've heard, you know, XP is all in these uh, industrial environments. But that's not to say that it's not because they're not taking security seriously. It's just because the life cycle of industrial devices are not what you would think of as your phone or your laptop. These things tend to be ruggedized. They tend to take a long time. Their life cycle 
is a really long time. Uh, so you're not getting new updates every, you know, I guess three years with your laptop and every year with your phone. So while you have older operating systems, while you have things uh, that don't necessarily get patched immediately, um, it's not because they don't want to. It's because the uh, it just takes a while. The life cycle is, is very long. And um, that's why it's so important to sort of have this idea of defense in depth, right? To kind of think about all of the different potential attack points in your infrastructure and, and ensure that, you know, as things are connected to the internet, that you're defending from multiple different potential attack points. You have this idea of uh, adversaries continuing to be able to bridge the sort of IT to ICS gap. Uh, and so a lot of times, you know, you have to focus across both of those systems in IT and OT. So, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about critical infrastructure is that it's everyone always focuses on, say, your cell phone or a computer or just an internet network that most people use. But critical infrastructure is something we, that's critical to life. And it, it doesn't tend to get the same sort of respect and, and uh, attention that other, other hacking things do. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. You have increased attention paid on these devices. Uh, here we are at DEF CON and Black Hat, and you have a lot of presentations focusing on industrial systems. Uh, there was a, for instance, a Delta controller presentation by McAfee where they were able to basically exploit the controller. Um, I think that people find it interesting and a little bit sexy to be able to say, oh, well, if I can compromise you know, this hardware, um, this that lives in critical infrastructure, it kind of seems like cool or hacky in a way that it isn't really with your phones or laptops. Um, but again, you know, as more people start paying attention to this, as the industry verticals begin to understand the importance of cybersecurity, begin to use uh, tools and resources to better protect their networks, I think you're gonna see a lot more research and a lot more um, attention paid from the security side of things. And it, I don't, I mean, I don't know if, uh, the iPhone or laptop is like a, you know, can't really, it's like kind of apples to oranges, right? Like uh, comparison. Um, but I think people are increasingly focused on this, especially, you know, with the attention paid in, in the news and whatnot. Especially after that episode of Mr. Robot where, you know, an industrial control system was hacked using Raspberry Pi. I didn't actually see that episode, so I can't comment on the feasibility of such an attack. But uh, yeah, and to be to be clear too, oftentimes you'll see a lot of these demos or hacks. Um, I don't want to call anyone call anything out in particular, but you you can sort of like hobby hacking. You can sort of target these these systems that are used in critical infrastructure, but you don't have the safeguards in place. For instance, you know if there's like. Uh, someone demoing a dam hack that flooded, uh, you're assuming that the operator at the dam was just not paying attention to the water rising significantly and then just decided to ignore it, I guess, right? So that's just one example, right? That's a human, um, a human safeguard. But there's a lot of different safeguards within ICS that can sort of catch these things. So oftentimes you'll see hacks uh, that sort of compromised devices or whatever without considering the safeguards in place in a lot of these critical systems. So Dragos put out a paper in early August, I believe, and it was, it was around the fact that oil and gas companies are being increasingly targeted. Why is that? Why, why, why that in particular? 
So back to the point about visibility, right? We're seeing more adversaries target these entities because we're getting greater visibility into such networks. But from an economic perspective, from an environmental perspective, oil and gas is definitely uh, an interesting target for adversaries. We did just release a paper, including uh, introducing a new activity group that does target the oil and gas sector as well as telecommunications. And as we've seen just in terms of politics, global politics that are currently happening right now in the Middle East, which tends to be a hot spot for um, oil and gas facilities and targeting. Uh, as that sort of activity increases, we've seen some increase in cyber targeting parallel with that. And what kind of attacks were they, they doing in particular? What were they after? What was their end goal? So it really varies with uh, oil and gas targeting adversaries. We haven't seen uh, at least it's not, we haven't seen any tricis style attack that is ICS-specific malware that's capable of disruptive or destructive consequences. A lot of times you'll see just general information gathering. You'll see um, password spraying attacks, phishing attacks, uh, attempts to gain initial intrusion into IT networks. Uh, there's this idea of um, the ICS cyber kill chain, right? So there's like stage one where you're gathering information, conducting reconnaissance, kind of positioning yourself for a potential stage two impact. But we haven't actually seen adversaries, very many adversaries, have the ICS-specific destructive capability like we've seen with uh, the Trisis malware, which affected oil and gas entity, and the crash override malware, which was targeted to electric utilities. And where were those? Where was Trisis actually? Where did it affect? Yeah, so Trisis targeted an oil and gas facility in Saudi Arabia, and crash override affected a, uh, an, electric, uh, an electric company in Ukraine. So is it fair to say that sometimes when this happens, it, it really does reflect geopolitical tensions? So you're seeing a greater investment from various entities that sponsor this type of activity, specifically focused on developing ICS uh, tools and capabilities. But that's kind of the trend that you're seeing with cyber capabilities in general. Um, I mean, we were just talking about this in terms of like national security and, and from like a, a terrorism perspective, you can't really extricate the cyber piece from that. Um, so there's a greater investment. The tools are getting easier to obtain. The capabilities are, are, are becoming easier to obtain. You have ICS networks increasingly connected. The tools and capabilities are improving and getting easier to obtain. And so, you know, there will be continued investment in that. And we are anticipating to in, in, activity will increase in this space. Do you think part of some of these intrusions is just sort of these nation states to try to get access to the systems so that in the event that something does go down, let's say some sort of kinetic war, that their sort of finger is on the keyboard in advance of it? To be clear, uh, Dragos, we don't actually attribute any of our activity groups to any states or individuals. And I don't really want to speculate on the intent of adversaries we have seen just, you know, fundamental information gathering operations. So what they do with that information, I don't necessarily want to speculate on. Yeah, I don't know if I can really answer that one for you. Well, I mean, I, I know in that paper there was, some, there was some sort of gesturing towards Iran or an Iranian-based group to some extent. Iranian hackers infiltrated computer software that controls the floodgates of this Rye, New York dam, just 20 miles outside of New York City. Right, so 
some of the activity groups that we do track align with Iranian strategic interests based off of third-party assessments. So Dragos will, as you see in the paper, we included associated groups. So perhaps other cybersecurity companies or uh, government agencies have their own uh, assessments on those groups as well. No, just because, I mean, you, you mentioned the Middle East and the tensions that are there. And, and you know, if you also look at the, the two examples you cited, one of them is Ukraine, the other one's in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, if you look at Ukraine, that power outage that happened in 2015, it was pretty clearly linked towards sort of a, a, a shot at the bow from Russia against Ukrainian interests. And if you look at Saudi Aramco, you look at the, the persistent targeting of some of these, these places, it seems to me anyways, as a reporter in this space, that you're seeing a direct reflection of geopolitical tensions and sort of critical infrastructure attacks. That said, there are other, I'm sure there are other critical infrastructure attacks or at least intrusions that happen that have nothing to do with geopolitics. Yeah, I mean, military conflict, political conflict certainly plays a role in any sort of cyber ops, I would say. And just due to the criticality of infrastructure, electric, oil and gas, transportation even, you know, these these things would certainly be of interest in that scope. So there definitely is this thing in critical infrastructure attacks where people really almost, I want to say overblow them, but I, I'd like to see, I'd like to hear what you think. There's a lot of this, you know, I'm thinking of like Leon Panetta, you know, like Cyber 9-11 or Cyber Poor Harbor. And Defense Secretary Panetta warns potential enemies, including Iran, are developing the capability to launch devastating attacks. The collective result of these kinds of attacks could be a cyber Pearl Harbor. I'm thinking there's, I don't know how many headlines I've seen where ISIS is attacking the power grid. You know, to you, put the threat level for me, like how, how, how scary is the critical infrastructure attack game when it comes to U.S. targets? I hate the phrase cyber Pearl Harbor and cyber 9-11. I am triggered. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so it's, 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 certainly, it's certainly important. It's a big deal. I do think a lot of times these things can be overblown just because there's a fundamental mis- misunderstanding or a sort of lack of nuance in a lot of what we see, right? So, for example, I don't even want to like... I don't, I'm not going to call out a specific event, just as an, to give an example. You might see a, a phishing campaign targeting an electric utility um, that would obviously be focused more on the IT side of things, just trying to gain an in, initial access into uh, an enterprise network. But it's positioned as a cyber attack on the electric infrastructure. So sometimes the nuance is a little bit lacking, right? Like you don't go from a phishing attack to like crash override immediately. So the threats are real. They're, you know, certainly concerning, but we haven't seen a Trisis style or crash override style attack uh, recently, certainly not in 2018 and, and not in 2019. That's not to say, you know, that we're anticipating it's not going to happen. Well, thank you, Selena. I should also mention, thanks, former journalist, Selena <laughs> Larson, for doing this, this, this podcast with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I do have to say, you know, journalism is very uh, similar to um, intelligence analysis. It's a lot of research, it's a lot of writing, it's a lot of talking to people, and it's been really fun. Oh, I know, they've spied on me before. (laughs) Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Goddamn nightmare is what it was. And then I spent eight and a half hours in Pearson International Airport. And I had a wrap when I was there, Jason, let me tell you. Can we start the roundup? Yeah. I don't feel good about you it. Done, you done ranting at me, Ben? I'm done ranting. I hate Pearson International why don't, Airport. Why don't we talk about the, the airport one first? All right. Let's do Th- it. Then maybe you can uh, include some of your rant in it. How much I hate Toronto airport? International yeah. Airport? Yeah, all right. Well, here we go. No, let's go to something I hate more. The Uber CEO who actually was, he literally kind of said, well, Saudi Arabia made a mistake. They just beheaded a guy. People make mistakes, Jason. <laughs> what is this? So on Axios on HBO this weekend, Uber CEO Derek, Derek Kashrashahi, I think I said that sort of right. The guy who replaced Travis Kalanick was supposed to be the adult in the room and the grown-up CEO was asked about uh, how he felt about Saudi Arabia's execution of Jamal Khashoggi. And he compared it to an accident made in the same way that Uber made an accident when they killed that person with a self-driving car and said that, <laughs> like, basically... What is this? The guy, the guy on, uh, on Axios was pressing him to ask him if he would attend, uh, you know, a, a meeting in Saudi Arabia or would allow uh, one of his Saudi Arabian investors to come to a board meeting and, and sort of vice versa. And he basically said... We all, we, we all make mistakes. Mistakes happen, and uh, they owned up to this mistake, so there should be a chance for them to sort of make things right. Well, see, the thing is about that is if he had the reading ability of a 12-year-old, he'd know that they haven't owned up to it. They're still, like, their official line is that it was an unfortunate accident, and they kind of were forced to murder, cut his head off, dismember him. <laughs> Like, it wasn't a mistake. It was a pre-planned assassination of the worst degree. Right. And so uh, the CEO walked that statement back almost immediately and was like, oh, yeah, like in the heat of the moment, I said something I didn't mean. And I don't know, like, take that for what you want. But the, the fact remains that Saudi Arabia is one of Uber's biggest investors. It always has been. And that, uh, you know, the other biggest investor is SoftBank, Japan's SoftBank. And Japan SoftBank gets all of, or a lot of its money from Saudi Arabia. So Uber is like very... They can't really do much about that one. Yeah, I mean, this just, it certainly reads as like, we're trying to gloss over this... But like, come quote, on, unfortunate man. incident that was just a, a terrible, terrible thing. That These happened. rideshare companies are just doing nothing for themselves in 2019. They have had a bad go of it. Not having a good year. Yeah. Let's talk about your uh, your story from last week, or or one of several of your stories from recent weeks. But uh, a neo Nazi forum got doxed. What happened, Ben? A neo Nazi forum got doxed. Uh, I wrote about this. So. There was this 
a lot of people know this, but there was a, a neo-Nazi forum called Iron March. Basically, everybody who is within the militant neo-Nazi community, if it were, uh, was on there. And there was actually a link on its, its now uh, kind of heir apparent, which is Fascist Forge, after Iron March was shut down, that kind of exposed all of the users. It was all the old data from Iron March that was previously there, but no longer there. And people actually liked it because they wanted to see what was around, you know, in, in previous iterations of neo-Nazism. But in that link, there was a ton of, ton of damning information, which included, you know, all of the posters, all of their e- personal email addresses, or at least the addresses that they used to get on the site. And what ended up being on it was just sort of this, it was this way of verifying so much information about different uh, different types of groups who we've been tracking, Mac Lammer and myself and a lot of other people, including groups like Adam Waffen Division. There was also, you know, evidence of service members that were on it, which, you know, people have found out previously. But suffice it to say, it was just this giant, you know, trove, basically a doxing of this n- huge highly important neo-Nazi website. Yeah, so to be clear, this website wasn't just any neo-Nazi website. It no, was, it was one the where, one. And it's where, you know, some of these violent groups like Adam Waffen actually grew out of this, correct? Exactly. It was sort of the birthplace of these, uh, of a lot of these groups. It's sort of considered that that is the, the birthplace of militant white nationalist terrorist organizations of the last, let's say, four or five years. And they all congregated there until it was it was it was shut down. Right. So that site is shut down, and the fact that this stuff leaked, you know, people who are not neo Nazis are interested in this because it exposes who who was. And there's yeah, was. there's all sorts of stuff on there. There's there's tons of like, you know, I saw university college emails used for it, where you you see who it is, and you're able to like link the person and some of the papers they wrote. It's just basically it unmasks the the various types of people that were on these websites. Of which, you know, the, 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 the profile is vast. It's not just, you know, exactly who you think it is. There's tons and tons of people who are on there. Can we quickly talk World of Warcraft since you had a, a nice scoop on that? Yeah, let's do it. So there was a congressman who called out World of Warcraft and Blizzard because one of its guilds had a costume contest. On inside, Halloween. On Halloween, on, you know, inside the game. By the way, I'm going to, like, really screw up the way I talk about this because I'm not So a far, so good. You haven't so far, messed so up good? anything All right, yet. Yeah, okay. And in, 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 the, uh, in this costume contest, and they, by the way, this guild was known for, for a long time for its kind of racist, anti-Semitic, white supremacist points of view that had been, been shared on it. And one of the, the or I think it is the, it was essentially the, the guild the leader, leader yeah. Horrigan, correct? Yep. He he did a costume which was clearly it was a KKK member and a white cloak and all that and there were two avatars that were meant to be showing what were slaves and he said stuff like next stop Charlottesville if I I could be I could be uh, paraphrasing yeah and that. one one of the uh, the people one of the enslaved people was named Jesse Jackson right like yeah on, uh, it, and so this this congressman uh, came out and called it out. And we got that scoop. We put it out there, and turns out this 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 little guild also was sponsored allegedly by Stormfront, right. which is another it's, 
massive neo-Nazi website. Yeah, it's said that it was sponsored by Stormfront for like years. Yes. And it, it's operated in the world of Azeroth, which is uh, World of Warcraft's Would you world. say WoW? Would you shorten it for WoW? You could say WoW, yeah. I mean... Do people say that? Yeah, people say that. But World of Warcraft, I don't know. I, I haven't really played any. I've never played it. Anyways, uh, it, it's operated in Azeroth on WoW, on WoW for like a decade. Yeah. Since it basically since its inception. And it's been well known for a really long time to be like this racist clan. And, and Blizzard hasn't ever really done anything about it. And the best part was when the, these group members were sort of uh, responding to all this, they had a meeting and there was a SoundCloud of it, which was, which was leaked. And like the Horgan guy was trying to say like, no, it was, I was trying to dress as a ghost. And some of these other members were like, dude, fuck you. We're not idiots. We know what that was. Why did you do it? So, you know, there was definitely members who were not of that guild who were not down with it. But the fact that this guild had had this association in the past and it was clearly, you know, not for the best. It was, uh, and it was interesting to see that the World of Warcraft got the attention of a congressman. <laughs> yeah, for really. sure, for sure. <laughs> Should we talk uh, Alien Story of the Week? I I love this story. The story is so good. Wow, it's another one. It's like the it's like the Alien Alloys yeah. story. We worked on this story for a really long time. Like this is it's like been investigative in UFO stuff. I yeah. love it. Hit me. So Bob Lazar is the guy who basically invented. Area 51 as we know it. He is the person who showed up on, I think it was an Arizona TV station back in 1989, where he said, hey, like, at my job, I work on alien uh, spacecraft. The U.S. government is hiding it. So he did that, like, under a pseudonym, and then a few months later, he came out, and he's like, my name is Bob Lazar. So he, he basically thinks of himself as, like, this whistleblower that explained that the government is hiding aliens at Area 51. So he retires from, like, public life after doing this. Like, he re- he sort of retires from being, like, a conspiracy theorist, I guess you'd call him. And he goes and he founds this scientific supply company called United Nuclear. And it's basically a... It's an online shop that sells, like, Bunsen burners and Erlenmeyer Meyer flasks and test tubes and all these... Uh, and, like, ke- various chemicals for, like... Scientists to do stuff. <laughs> so, I like that. Scientists to do stuff. Yeah, like, to do some science. Bun- so you say Bunsen burner. I'm back in like yeah, eighth high grade lab, yeah. uh, like chem lab. Uh, anyways, so a year ago, like Bob Lazar suddenly storms back on the scene because storms onto the scene. Yeah, this guy named Jeremy Corbell, who has made a whole bunch of different uh, documentaries, but also is a jiu-jitsu master who sells instructional videos for something he calls quantum jiu-jitsu, came out with... That sounds sounds reliable. Yes, came out with a Netflix documentary. I think it was on Netflix, but it it was a documentary called Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Aliens, or something like this. Yeah. And a core part of this documentary is, while filming this documentary, Bob Lazar and Jeremy Corbell start thinking that they are getting surveilled by the U.S. government. And then the very next day in this documentary, like after they start talking about this, Bob Lazar's company gets raided by the FBI. So United Nuclear gets raided. 
I know what I'm watching tonight. Yeah. And so it's like this big thing, like, why did, what, what does the FBI want with me? Like, why did they do this? And what Bob Lazar says is that it's because he stole or took or like somehow has this element called element 116 that he... I fucking love it. That he worked on, this is what he says, that he worked on at Area 51 that he says he was trying to reverse engineer because it was the alien fuel source that was used to power a UFO. And it's basically like has anti-gravity properties and all this crazy shit. What? Yeah, so the thought is like by Lazar and Corbell and uh, various of their supporters was that the FBI was raiding United Nuclear because they wanted to take back Element 116 from Lazar who was like hiding this alien element, alien fuel source at his scientific supply company. All right, well, okay, so... First question. Obviously, I want to believe. I want to believe. I want to believe so much. And like, <laughs> but like, how you did the story? Well, you yeah. You, so I edited the story. Edited the story. It was written by Tim McMillan, who's who, been doing a bunch of crazy UFO stuff. He has. Yeah, he's actually been killing a, a Tim. For, Tim, you've been killing it. He's a former cop who became a UFO reporter, and he retired from being a cop, which is also just like he retired from being a cop. He has a TED talk about it and everything. It's a very interesting story. Uh, We should have him on at some point. Yeah, we should. I just want to talk about UFOs with him. Yeah. So anyways, this all happened. And then he filed Freedom of Information Act requests with the local police in Michigan about this raid and about this case. And what came back is that this raid is part of a homicide investigation. What? So, yes. So Bob Lazar is not a suspect in the homicide. However... There is a woman in Michigan who was poisoned to death with this poison called thallium. And thallium is an element, another element. I don't know too much about it, but it's used in like electronics manufacturing and a couple other things. All of these and it's, elements. It's an odorless, tasteless substance that kills you if, if consumed. So this woman was poisoned with thallium and the only person who sells thallium in that area is Bob Lazar's United Nuclear. And so they, uh, according to the documents we got, the police got a subpoena from uh, a search warrant to um, like look up a, one of the suspect's search for histories and found that you know he had Googled Bob Lazar's company's website on like Google, Yahoo, and Bing, or like one of the three at least. And so then they executed this search warrant and... You know, they obtained like a lot of records from Lazar about the sale of thallium. And that's what this was all about. And that case is actually still ongoing. So we're not actually sure like where this. Okay, but I'm going to say something. Is that what it's all about? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's so we talked to Lazar, (laughs) who actually like talked to us about this. And he's like, that's a cover story. Like, that's, yeah, that's a cover story. But there's this woman who was murdered with thallium and like, Bob Lazar does sell thallium. Like, but did you have to raid the place to get the thallium? He cooperated with the the, the whole situation, so it's like it's just so, okay. It's so, a crazy story. You should definitely read it. But okay, like, so I, but Bob Lazar question. So does Liz- he seem? Does he seem? You know, he's like a calm dude. He's a, he's definitely calm. He's good at de- delivering his talking points. I mean, he says things like I. There's an alien fuel source called Element 116 that I worked on. But like, I don't know, man. With all the stuff we found out recently, (laughs) I don't know. 
I, I mean, watch, Maybe he's watch the, the doc, read the stories. It's like he maintains his story like Jeremy Corbell, the documentary filmmaker who's definitely a believer, also maintains a story and says that this is like a front. It's just like it's it's a crazy, crazy story. And it's one of those very rare stories where I'm like, oh, yeah, like uh, the guy said that the uh, the FBI is raiding his office to find an alien fuel source. Uh, but that's not actually what happened. What actually happened is really crazy, like almost as crazy. Like I just want a lawyer to say that in a court of law. Like, uh, Your Honor, actually, this isn't this FBI raid was a for thallium was a complete cover story. The real reason is that my client was in in possession of an anti gravity fuel used by an alien race to visit planet Earth that he obtained at Area Fifty One. Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> but but also like, how often do you get like a poisoning story where it's just, like it's, it's like true. it's pretty crazy? Yeah, I agree. Anyways, yeah. One last crazy thing about this story is this is definitely the first time we mentioned a Bing search. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, what happened to Bing? Anyway, uh, okay, last one, last uh, last you round. Can of story. rant about airports. Yeah, exactly. This is this is it's good news. This is very good. This news. is very good news. So, the Lorenzo, a, a nice Lozo story. Yeah, yeah, a nice Lozo story. So, a federal court in Massachusetts ruled that the government can't search your phone or laptop at the airport for no reason. So, Customs and Border Patrol, TSA, etc., can't demand that you hand over your phone and, like, unlock it for them so they can go through it, which is very important because for years, the government has asserted that the Fourth Amendment doesn't really exist at the borders, like within 150 miles, I believe. Which is psychotic. Of the border, yeah. And it's really crazy. It's like basic... So it creates like all these lawless zones like near the border. Like we're 150 miles from the border right now. Like we're 150 miles from the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it basically takes like all of... Not all, but like... A was, large, like, Colorado is the only place you can't yeah, get fucking pinched? Yeah, like, I mean, it's, like, a lot of the um, largest cities in America are within 150 miles of either an ocean or a border. And so it created this weird, like, border zone. And so a uh, a court in Massachusetts ruled that this is illegal. A federal court. Yes. Which uh, is, I wonder if it's going to go up. It's going to go up then. Yes. And, and so, I mean, in any case, this is a good ruling. I mean, I think... We have to, I think we should mention here that often the people who have their phones and laptops, you know, searched at the border are people of color, are people who uh, are just traditionally grabbed by TSA. And so it's a good, it's definitely a good ruling. I think, uh, I hope it changes behavior. I'm not sure if we'll see that or not, but it's like, I guess if uh, there are very few people who are willing to fight with a TSA agent or like Customs and Border Patrol at an airport or at the border when they're intimidating you. So I think that's like very much worth mentioning. But in any case, this is like, it's a good ruling. It's much better than the alternative. That's a great ruling. It's a a really good one. I mean, if anything to make airports and their security less oppressive, might I add? (laughs) Triple S or quadruple S man over here. Yeah, whoever's whoever's listening, get me off. I want to be able to check in online. (laughs) Because I never can. It's a pain in my ass. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This week, before in, this, before this, this week in cyber, ben, yeah. ben has been ranting at me for like hours. It feels like hours. Yeah. The, the, the mic it's is It's almost like the hours loud. I yeah. spent into an, in an airport recently. Toronto International, Pierce International Airport. You, I hate you. You got back here. Yeah. Congrats. 
Yeah, anyway, we'll see you next Before week. Before this turns into the airport hate yeah, podcast. Stop yelling, Ben. All right. Okay, I'll see you next week. <laughs> this week's episode was edited and recorded by Andrew Bursick, produced and voiced by me, Ben Maku. You'll be hearing from me next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.